Well, from my experience, there are two types of military hero stories that you're going to hear. Now, there's going to be one type that you don't hear. If you talk to a real hero, one type of story you're probably never going to hear is one where they talk about themselves and they paint themselves in a good light. They don't do that. Heroes don't do that. One of the types of stories they do tell, though, is they'll tell a story that paints themselves in a poor light. I've seen it. I've talked to heroes from World War II and what they recalled and what they remembered and what they shared was something that they had, had done wrong or not well. That's what they remembered. That's what stuck in them. And that's what they were sharing. And no matter what, when they share a story, it's for, it's for your benefit. They're not going to share that story for their own benefit. The second type of story they will tell, though, is the story of someone else who did a heroic act. They're going to tell about someone else who did something that was amazing and so much so that the, the war hero even was astounded by it. See, those are the two types of stories you're going to hear. And they always tell those stories for your benefit, for your good. And we're going to see that the Apostle Paul in today's text, he's going to tell a story, but it's not going to be about himself. He's going to hold up someone else. He is going to hold up the church of the Macedonians, and he's going to talk about what they did and how amazing they were. And it's for our good. The Apostle Paul wants to motivate the church at Corinth to mobilize, to give generously, to support Christian suffering in Jerusalem. To do this, he begins telling a hero story about someone else. And the point is to motivate the Corinthians to emulate those heroes. We're in the third part of a, of a four-week study on, on giving and finances. And we looked at Ecclesiastes the first week and we were in the Gospel of Luke the second week. Today, though, we're in 2 Corinthians, and this is a very, very personal letter. You see, the church in Corinth was founded by the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey. He spent about 18 months in Corinth, and he founded the church, and he set up leaders, and he grew it. And after he moved on, he got word that things weren't going well. And he would write letters to try to correct what's going on. You see, he had spent 18 months with them. This was dear to him. And after that first letter, which we call, well, the second letter we call 1 Corinthians, they didn't respond well. In fact, seemed, things seemed to get a little bit worse in it. And so Paul made a visit. And he calls it the painful visit. You see, Paul was going to this church, which he had, he had not only pastored, but he had started. These were his people. He he's the one that shared the gospel. He's the one that brought him to Christ. And now there were factions, there were false teachers, there was rebellion. And this was very personal to him. And when he showed up in Corinth, he called it the painful visit. Because when he was there, the tax continued. Not only did they attack him, personally, but 
even his reputation and even his authority was under attack. He returned to Ephesus and he wrote what he calls the severe letter. And in that severe letter, he's trying to convince them to repent. And Titus took the severe letter and gave it to the church in Corinth. Good news. The church in Corinth responded well to that letter, and most of them repented. Paul had moved on to Macedonia, and he gets word from Titus that the church in Corinth has repented, and he sits down to pen another letter. That is what we call 2 Corinthians. This is very personal because he still has reconciliation to do with that church. He still has to mend a few things. He still has to make a few things right, and he still has to deal with that faction who's there. But in the midst of that, in the midst of a reconciliation and in the midst of defending against these false teachers that were in the church, he talks about generosity and giving in a very, very personal and pastoral way. You see, the city of Corinth was situated in a pristine location. It, it, it was in the midst of trade routes, both sea and land. It was a wealthy city. And it had been founded by Julius Caesar in 44 BC, and 95 years later, it was flourishing. And it was pretty much founded by freemen. Those are former slaves who were now free, and they have a chance to actually make wealth and to grow their wealth. And so they are excited about that, and that means a lot to them. Their cultural currency was intellect. Wisdom and rhetoric were their obsessions. Their commodity was influence. Wisdom led to power and affluence led to respect. And that's what they desired. They wanted that respect and that was by affluence. And like other churches that time, one of the big threats in the early church was false teachers and Corinth had them. And Paul was having to deal with false teachers and those were all over the churches. The second threat though was persecution. Now it wasn't so much in Corinth, but in Jerusalem, the Christians were being persecuted and they were suffering there. But a third challenge began in AD 45. In that year, the Nile flooded, which led to a poor harvest Drought in other parts of the world just contributed and increased uh, the famine and the food shortages. And although brief famines would occur about every four, 20 years, I should say, in that area of the world, this one would last almost 15 years. It would be known as the Great Famine. And Christians were suffering, especially those in Jerusalem. Because they were facing great persecution, they would lose their possessions and, and their positions for being a Christian, and they were suffering. And even the apostles, when Paul visited in AD 48, would say, remember the poor. Remember the poor because they're suffering so much. And so Paul goes about and he wants to raise money for that church in Jerusalem. He wants to raise money for the fellow Christians. And he's been founding churches in Gentile areas. And he's got Gentile and Jewish believers. And he wants them to contribute to the believers in Jerusalem. And so he goes about trying to raise a collection for them. And he went to the church in Corinth and they were eager to do that. But 
they hadn't been doing it. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, they even ask, what should we do about this collection? And in chapter 16, he lays out a few things. He says, okay, here's what you do. Here's how you collect funds for Jerusalem. He said, on the first day of the week, set something aside and store it up. In other words, regular contributions. Do it according to the Lord's provision as he may prosper. In other words, give as everybody is able to give. And then finally, do it over time. Don't try to take the collection all up at once when Paul shows up. Do it over time. Collect the money. And if you have read 1 Corinthians, to no one's surprise, they hadn't been doing this. So instead of Paul just encouraging them again or just even telling them to do it, he takes these two chapters in 2 Corinthians and he weaves a brilliant theology of generosity that inspires and guides us to joyful and cheerful giving. That's his strategy. So he begins in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, we want you to know brothers. And he's going to begin with a story. He's going to tell a story of some Christians who gave amazingly well. And that story begins with God and the grace that God poured out on the Macedonians. And he says, he says we want you to know brothers. In other words, pay attention. This is an important event for you to know and for you to consider as you think about generosity. You need to know what happened in Macedonia. This is important. So he says, pay attention to this because this is really about God and how God works. This is not about the churches in Macedonia. In other words, it's not about God giving grace to the Macedonians and that's where it all stops. You see, when God gives grace, that grace gets extended out and that's what he wanted to happen. And that's what happened in Macedonia. So the story doesn't end with the Macedonians. Now, this is a story about how God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. God's hands are all over this. We're going to see a few things in this. Number one, we know that God has ordained a sovereign plan of salvation in which he is saving the elect from every nation. And he does that through churches and through people and through missionaries. That's how he spreads the gospel, through us. But also, he uses tangible financial resources as one of the means of executing his plan. And his, in his wisdom, he has distributed and directed global economies in such a way that generosity is necessary for the mission. In other words, in his providence, we need one another. That's the way God has set it up. And not surprisingly, that's difficult for us to grasp in America today. In America, we're affluent. We don't look around and see people who are in need, who are, or who are living day by day, meal by meal, hand to mouth. Generally speaking, people have means Generally speaking, that means we're not prepared to be generous. See, we allow our spending habits to control our finances. And if that sounds like you, then, then this passage is for you. Because see, in this text, we don't just learn how to be generous. 
but we're going to learn how to love to be generous. And beloved, it always, it begins with God. So what happened in Macedonia? Paul describes it as a severe test of affliction. What was that test? You see, the famine had spread also to Macedonia. They had persecution there as well. People were hurting. Yet, the church in Macedonia wanted to help their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They wanted to give. They wanted to help them out financially. They had abundant joy because grace had been poured out on them, but they also had extreme poverty. And by extreme poverty, it was extreme. They were at rock bottom. They were what we would say dirt poor. They weren't living paycheck to paycheck. This was meal to meal. This was hand to mouth. Where's the next meal coming from? This is the condition of the church in Macedonia. They were poor. And what was going to happen was this grace of God that had been poured out upon them, which was going to arise in them, this abundant joy was going to collide head on with extreme poverty. And we would look at that and say, but the only thing that can happen out of that would, would be just insanity to have this extreme joy and yet this extreme poverty. But that's not what happened. What does the text say? It says, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you hear those big words? It overflowed in a wealth of generosity. This wasn't just a little bit of generosity. The Macedonians were overflowing with it. They couldn't be more generous. So how can someone so poor be so generous? Only by the grace of God. So do you see the progression? The grace of God creates an abundance of joy which manifests itself in overflowing generosity. Generosity is generated by joy in the Lord. The more joyful in God we become, the more generous with his gifts we will be. Our finances then are a visible extension of our joy in God. But it gets better. They didn't just give according to their means, but beyond their means. So now you have poor people who are giving generously, overflowing with a wealth of generosity. And Paul, he, he can't even believe it. And so he, he says, I can testify to this. I could testify what happened because you're not going to believe it if I tell you. I saw it with my own eyes. The Macedonian Christians gave more than Paul would have imagined. Today we say they gave above and beyond. And let's, let's go another step forward. They gave to their own hurt. They gave until it hurt. This wasn't just sacrificial giving. I'm going to give up a luxury so that I can give money to you so that you can have a necessity. They gave to where they gave up necessities for the people in Jerusalem. They gave more than people would say it was wise to give. One writer even said they robbed themselves to give to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Poor, giving to the poor. Think about that. 
Think about how that displays the supreme worth of Jesus Christ that the poor would give to the poor. Yet again, Paul says, but wait, there's more. Look at verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged Paul and his companions to take more money. They considered it not a duty to give, but it would be a blessing to them if they would be permitted to give more. So here's a question for you. What kind of theology do you have to have that would drive those type of convictions that would lead to that type of radical generosity? What is your theology? Well, we know Jesus himself said in Matthew, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and they believe that in in the gospel of luke for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions so even if you have a lot of things that's not your life it's not what it means in the book of acts it is more blessed to give than to receive, and they believed it. And in 1 Timothy, instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that may, they may take hold of that which is life indeed. And we call that faith. When we trust in the promises of God, that is faith. The Macedonians had faith. And how could they have such faith? Verse 5 tells us that. Listen to what it says. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. First to the Lord and then to Paul and his mission. You see, they were committed to the person of Jesus Christ. And if we are committed to the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then we are committed to his mission. That's what that means. But first, we must be committed to him. It was, wasn't too long ago, maybe a couple months ago, I, I watched a video online. And in the video, there were students asking questions of a Christian teacher. And these weren't Christian students. As, there were some, but it, these were students on campus, and they were asking questions. And one of the questions was this. A student asked, what if I'm a Christian, but I don't agree with everything Jesus and the Bible says? In this case, she was referring to clear teaching in Scripture about marriage and other issues we would talk about today. And the teacher made it clear that it is odd that someone who is clearly not a follower of Jesus would call herself a Christian. You see, there are criteria set forth that followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Follower of Jesus, they don't lead. We don't try to redirect Jesus. We don't try to correct where we think he's going wrong. If we're a follower of Jesus, we follow Jesus. And that's what they were doing in Macedonia. We don't try to compete with Christ for leadership because in the end, 
That is simply an opposition to Christ. The Macedonians had given themselves to Christ. So obedience to him was a natural thing. So if you give yourself to the Lord as the Macedonians did, you will rejoice in his plans and in his ways. His mission will be your mission. What he loves, you will love. Where he sends, you will go. His words will be your words. And his truth is the only truth. Paul then says in verses six through eight, he says, complete this act of grace, excel in this act of grace, and prove that your love is genuine. Why was Paul so eager to have them do this? Why was he so eager for them to give to the church in Jerusalem? Because he wanted their joy to be abundant. In chapter one, Paul says that he is working with the church in Corinth for their joy. And you see, the joy comes from the grace of God. And right now, that joy with the Corinthian church was probably a little bit dimmed because of the conflict they've been having, the false teachers and all of that going on. And Paul really wants them to have joy. And that means you respond. And so that begins with Christ. And additionally, love is demonstrated when we care for one another. Paul tells them, prove your love is genuine. Recall the new commandment that Jesus gave on the night he was arrested. He said to the disciples, he said, a new commandment I give unto you that you should love one another even as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Do you hear what he said? We are to love others as he loved us. And how did he love us? Well, that very night he demonstrated it. That very night when the disciples showed up to the upper room, Jesus is the one who took the towel, took the basin, took the water. He humbled himself and he served the disciples that night. He demonstrated love to them by serving them. And we are to love one another as Christ loves us. And in 1 John chapter 3, John writes this. He says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So Paul says, I need you to prove that your love is genuine And the genuine love sees a brother in need and responds to it. And Paul is calling them to that. They could demonstrate real love by caring for the suffering in Jerusalem. So if you wanted to inspire somebody who may be a little reluctant, maybe a little stingy, and you wanted to Inspire them to be a cheerful giver. How would you inspire them? What would you do? Well, Paul makes a bold move, and he inspires them with the incarnation. Again, Paul's wanting to inspire the Corinthians to be cheerful and generous. And look at verse 7. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, See also that you excel in this act of grace. 
So the grace was given to the Macedonians, which filled them with joy and led them to be extremely generous. Grace must come to completion. Have we received grace if we don't respond to it as if we've received grace? The parable of the wicked servant. Jesus told this parable, a wicked servant owed the king great amount of money, couldn't pay it off. And the king forgave his debt. It's grace. And what did the wicked servant do? He went out and saw another servant who owed him a little bit of money. And when he couldn't pay, had him thrown in prison. Do you think that that first servant, the wicked one who said, I'm going to repay you everything, had received the grace that had been given to him? Or would he have extended grace if he had received that grace that had been offered? And you see what Paul does. He commends them for their faith, speech, knowledge, diligence, and even love. But what does he want them to abound in? He wants them to abound in this act of grace, this generous, glad-hearted giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem. So Paul wants them, the Corinthians, just like the saints in Macedonia, to overflow in passionate joy so that they're generous to the church in Jerusalem. But he doesn't want to manipulate them or motivate them uh, to do this uh, just out of willpower or obligation. In other words, he doesn't want them to just blindly go through the motions. See, the purpose of telling them about the Macedonians was to show them that they too, no matter their circumstances, can have the overwhelming joy that leads to big-hearted generosity. See, the reason he told them about the Macedonians is he could say, look at them. God poured out his grace on them And look what happened. They were filled with such joy that they were generous. That can happen to you. And Paul's pleading with his church at Corinth to see that. See, he knows the kind of giving God loves. God doesn't like us to be just walking through the motions and give begrudgingly. But he wants us to be motivated by the grace, by Christ. So Paul clarifies that in verse 8. He says, I'm not commanding you. This isn't a demand. I'm not telling you you have to do this. See, that's not the way God does it. He says, but you really should be generous and joyful and give to this obvious need. You, You should do this. I'm telling you as a pastor, this is something you should do. And by the way, this is that delicate balance that pastors must walk when it comes to discussions of giving. That delicate walk of, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I really must encourage you to look at Scripture, to look to Christ, to see how generous he was, to see the grace that you've received. Now, how are you going to respond? Pastors don't want to manipulate. They want to inspire So Paul takes it a further step to inspire us through the incarnation. And what is the incarnation? The incarnation is when the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to earth as a literal, historical human being. Without ceasing to be fully God, he became fully human. And all of this was grace to us. And prior to the incarnation... Jesus was rich. He enjoyed all the privileges of the Godhead. He was in full communion 
with the Trinity. He was worshipped and adored. He was praised day and night. He's the creator God. He holds all things together. The heavenly host praise his name. And yet after the incarnation, he was also fully man, fully human. We celebrate this every Christmas, by the way, when Jesus became man on our behalf. Now, he never ceased to be God, but he chose to temporarily lay aside his privileges so that he could have a complete, undiluted experience of being fully human. He willingly experienced all of the agonies and weaknesses of being a human without pulling out his God card to fix it. He was hungry. He was tired. He wept. And he even faced suffering and death, the cruel beatings and the death on a Roman cross. He knew what it meant to be fully human. Hear what it says in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why did he do all of this? He did it for us. In his mercy, he looked down upon humanity and saw that we were in a state of sin and death and we could do nothing to save ourselves. We were stuck. Humanity could do nothing. So in his mercy... He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He reached down into that realm of sin and death and pulled us up to the realm of life. That's what he did for us. Oh, what grace that is, what love, what generosity. And he took, he laid aside, I said, his riches and took on poverty that is all the humanity setting aside his, his attributes. And he was made poor so that we now may be made rich. He took the form of a servant that we might become adopted sons and daughters. He was tempted that we might overcome. And he was despised so that we could be glorified. And he died so that we could live. So what is Paul doing here with this theology of Christ? How does this connect with the situation at hand? How is he trying to motivate the Corinthians to be joyfully generous without forcing or manipulating them? He's displaying for them the most beautiful and compelling act of generosity in history as the ultimate power that produces generosity. He takes the greatest act of generosity and he holds it up. Look at Jesus Christ, what he did for you. And by seeing that, we could be moved to generosity.
He does this because all authentic love, all authentic joy and affection, and all authentic generosity is truly produced only when we come to grips with the beauty and grace of Christ. If you want, the tr- if you want true love, that's Christ. If you want true joy, it's Christ. If you want to live a truly unburdened, generous life, Christ. There is no higher appeal for us to make. The self-emptying of Christ Christ for Christians should lead them to empty their own pocketbooks for others in proportion to what they have. And that's important to remember, in proportion to what you have. There's a kind of a humorous story about Benjamin Franklin back in the 18th century. He had heard about this great orator and preacher named George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was an outdoor preacher, and he had a commanding voice, and they said that he could actually preach to thousands of people at one time. And Ben Franklin was a little bit skeptical of that claim. So he actually went to hear George Whitfield preach one day, and as he was preaching, he walked about kind of the perimeter where he could clearly hear and make out everything that George Whitfield was saying. And when the crowds had dispersed, he kind of measured that area and figured out how many people per, you know, square foot in that area. And he realized he could actually preach to about 20,000 at one time with that booming voice that he had. But Ben Franklin also had another problem. And that's every time he went to hear George Whitfield preach, he would give him all his money. Everything he had on him, he would give and put in the plate because he was so moved by Whitfield's preaching, so much so that Ben Franklin said when he would go to hear Whitfield preach, he would leave his pocketbook at home <laughs> because he would just end up giving it all to Whitfield when he preached. Whitfield apparently was such a great speaker that they say, these were, this is what his contemporary said, he could say the word Mesopotamia and bring a crowd to tears. So, but we give in proportion, in proportion to what we have. You see, some people are natural givers and they're, they're very generous and they enjoy being generous. But authentic, long-term generosity makes an impact for eternity and it's only produced when a soul is captivated by Jesus Christ. We must be captivated by Christ. See him not only in his incarnation, but in his substitutionary death in his resurrection, and in his glorification, which we will one day share. So to the degree that we are staggered by the beauty of Christ, to that very same degree, we can be joyfully generous in a way that puts Christ on display. And how does this work? How does the incarnation empower and motivate us to be generous? Well, If you're still struggling, maybe with being a little bit tight-fisted, a little bit frugal, um, and you're not necessarily a cheerful giver, uh, what, what is the issue? Well, it's probably a glory of Christ issue. Actually, the glory of Christ, uh, is a soul issue. So the the issue is the affections of your heart. Do you treasure Christ? 
Well, it, today it's easy to, to be distracted and not to treasure Christ like this. But we need to be awakened by the most loving and generous act of history, what Jesus Christ did for us on our behalf. So how do we change that? If we're not feeling generous, if we're not feeling motivated, we need to spend time with Christ in his word. Be in the Holy Scriptures. That's what causes us to be joyful and to be generous. Just like when people are not disgusted by sin in their life and they begin to see sin as acceptable, we point them to Scripture and say, look at the holiness of God and you'll see how terrible your sin really is. Well, when we're not feeling generous, we look to Christ and his generosity. We look to Christ and what he did for us so that we can have our own generosity stimulated within us. Then Paul in verses 10 through 15 says something profound and answers some questions about how giving and generosity are supposed to work. And you can imagine the questions that are coming to mind. Are we supposed to be just like the Macedonian church and give to the point where it doesn't make sense, where, where we're really giving to our own hurt like that? Is that what we're supposed to do? Are we supposed to give so much that the, that the Christians in Jerusalem are living high on the hog and, and we're over here suffering? Is that what we're supposed to do? And so he's going to answer these questions for them. But he wants to say, is God really interested, you know, in, in what we actually give or our willingness to give? What's he really interested in? Well, God wants us to be willing givers. But he also wants us to really give. Do you see that? So in verse 10, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So the Corinthian church was on board early. Yes, we're going to give and help the church in Jerusalem. We're going to help our brothers and sisters who are suffering. They came on board. They were willing. But there was a problem. They didn't do it. So Paul says, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So yeah, it's great that you want to give, but you need to give. Now give according to what you have though. Did you hear that? Give according to what you have. So he says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Well, you know, that they need, you know, a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. Well, give what you have. That's what he's saying here. You give according to what you have, not what you don't have. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but it, that is a matter of fairness. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that in their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So what he's saying here is, look, we're looking for kind of helping each other out here. So the church in Jerusalem is hurting and we're kind of doing better. So now is the time for us to give to them because there may come a time when we need help and God is prospering them and they will give to help us. 
So this is what he's saying. He said, so don't think that we're only giving to them and, and that seems you know, unfair because you know, they seem to be the recipients in this. In God's economy, who owns it all? God owns it all. So if God moves some of it around, God moves some of it around and we aren't to be offended by that. So the church knew about this, but yet failed to do anything about it. And Paul knows that when you start putting something off, that only results in less motivation to do it. You know, if you're not going to do it right away, you're probably going to be less inclined to do it over time. So he's telling him to, to be about this, to get it done. Now is the time to produce. And so what he's saying here, and, and, and Paul is, is very pastorally wise here. And he's what he's saying in essence. He says, here's my recommendation, if I were you. And, and this is for your advantage. Not only have the desire to give, not, not only feel that generosity in your heart, but give and fulfill that desire. Do it. And so Paul is telling him, look, as a pastor, I'm telling you, that desire is wonderful, but go ahead and follow through with it as well. So you want to, to do this, now do it. Finish what you started. And he says, by your ability. So some translations actually say, by your ability. And what it means is out of what you have. And it means according to your means. So here's the principle for this. Uh, the amount you give is not the issue. The issue is whatever is generous for you, be that generous. Paul does not ask them to do as the Macedonians did and go beyond their means, but just give according to your means. Don't go into debt to become disadvantaged or overburdened. He's not asking us to do that. God does not expect everyone to be like the widow who gave the widow's mites, the two copper coins. And it was everything she had. All that she had to live on is what it says in Mark. But God does expect generosity and giving gifts without uh, a grumbling heart. The amount you give only matters to God insofar as much as it's out of the proportion of what you have and is done with a joyful and cheerful heart. So did Paul share this piece of wisdom about giving according to the means? Uh, because in Corinth, there would have been slaves there as well who did not have much. And Paul probably wanted to let them know whatever you can give, you give. But there are going to be people who can give more. And that's great because God owns it all. So how does this help us for today? For what the heart issue is, for what the heart issue does, this principle provide a cure. Namely, God desires only that we give out of the proportion of what we have. So um, even a, a small gift is better than not giving a gift at all. So Paul says, uh, we're not here trying to put you under a burden so that others can have an easy life. God does ask you to give sacrificially, but not necessarily foolishly. So what does Paul mean by fairness? He says here, he says, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that, they, that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. What does he mean by fairness? 
Well, he tells us here. He's assuring them that God has provided for their abundance at this time. So God has provided and you have what you need right now. And there are people who don't have. So we help them out. But fairness means whenever you have a need, others will provide for you too. That's what's fair. And that's what God and Paul are calling them to do right now. So he quotes the Old Testament, whoever gathered much had nothing left, left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. What he means by this is he's looking back to the time in the desert when God provided manna, and the people would gather every day, and everybody had enough uh, to eat while they were in the, in the wandering in the wilderness. Now we're going to move over to chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So when it comes to giving, we know what God likes and what he doesn't like. He doesn't like a grumbler. He doesn't like somebody who's stingy. He likes somebody who's cheerful and who's generous. So what is God's plan? Well, he uses the principle of sowing and reaping. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. And if you sow generously, you reap generously. What are the principles of sowing and reaping? Well, there are three. Number one, you reap what you sow. That means if you plant corn, you get corn. You don't get beans. You, you reap what you sow. It also means you don't reap right away. You don't plant a kernel of corn in the soil and that afternoon eat corn on the cob. There's time in there. And then finally, you always reap more than what you planted. How disappointing would that be to plant a kernel of corn only to have one ear of corn pop up with one kernel of corn on it? It wouldn't seem worth it. So you always get more. And this is what he is saying here. If you if you sow generously, God will, will reward you generously. That doesn't mean you receive it right away. But in sowing and reaping, you, you get what you sow. So he's saying, hey, don't sow sparingly. Sow bountifully so you can reap bountifully. And in verse 7, he says, I like how it starts, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we know what he doesn't like. We know what he does like. But he says here, this is a heart decision. So years ago, I was a youth leader, and I was taking a small youth group on a trip to a conference. And the conference was Friday night, all day Saturday. And we were sleeping in the basement of this church. And one of the young men going along, I think he was in seventh grade at the time. His name was Peter. He's now a senior pastor in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, which is kind of fun. He was texting me this morning. It's kind of fun. But on Friday night, the, the speaker talked about spending time with God every day. So Peter asked me, he said, Rich, are you going to get up tomorrow morning and, and spend time in the Bible tomorrow morning? I said, yes, I am. I said, everybody has to get up at 6 o'clock, so I'm going to have to get up at 5. 
If I'm going to be able to do this, I have to get up earlier than everybody else. And you know what he said to me? He said, I need you to wake me up. I'm going to do this at 5 o'clock with you. So he said, wake me up at 5 o'clock. I said, I'll do that for you. Then he said these words to me. By the way, Peter was rich with illustrations in his life. But he said, Rich, he says, um, oh, by the way, I can sometimes have a hard time getting up in the morning. He says, sometimes my mom has to wake me up like three times before I get out of bed. And I said, Peter, take a good look. I'm not your mom. <laughs> Should have been obvious. I said, you must make that decision now. This is a heart decision. Are you getting up at five or are you getting up at six? You determine that right now, and that decision needs to be made. God bless him. He said, I'm getting up at 5. And at 5 o'clock, I woke him, and he was right up. His mother, I don't think, believed that story, but that's actually the way it happened. But, see, we have to make the same type of decision about giving. This is a heart decision, meaning if we make the decision in our heart that this is what we could do, we follow through with it. We can't just abandon it. Because all of a sudden, well, things have kind of changed. Well, yeah, things will change, and there will be courses for that, courses of action that we may change. But in this case, we make the decision on what we're going to do. We need to follow through with it. It's a heart decision. And God works with us through that. So God doesn't like reluctant givers who, or people who give under compulsion. He likes people who plan for it. They decide in their heart what they're going to do. And they plan to be generous, and they're cheerful about it. And so finally here, well, not finally, but in verse 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that you have all sufficiency in all things, all times, that you may abound in every good work. And then in verse 9, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He who has distributed freely has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So he's talking about a person who has given freely to others, who has been generous. This is out of Psalms. And so his righteousness endures forever. So God will take care of you, that you can abound in good works. God will do that for you. And so the principle here is when this is true in our lives, that we decided to be generous and we see this, it will resonate in every part of our lives. And good works will abound. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Seed for sowing. You see, we're not enriched so that we can be rich. We're enriched so that we can be generous. When God gives us seed for sowing, that is meant for us to sow that seed, to give it away, that others may use it and abound. And God will give us more. Or there may be a time when we need, and God will provide through that. But God gives us seed, not so that we can, as we discussed last week, tear down old barns, build new barns, so that we can say, time to retire, eat, drink, and be happy. Uh, I got all I need. That's not what God gives us the extra seed for. It's so that we can sow it, so that we can be generous to others. And when that's done right, God gets all the glory. In these last verses, we kind of see what happens when believers do this. 
For the ministry of the service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So when we do this, we not only meet the needs of people, but there's an overflowing thanksgiving to God. So what happens? God is praised for this. By their approval of this service, they'll do, uh, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So when we do this, they look at this and they say, wow, uh, look at the three things that we see in here. They're going to glorify God that comes from the confession of the gospel because of our generosity. So we can start with the generosity, then the gospel is heard from that and glory to God comes from it. So this is, these are the things that occur when we are generous and when we give. And finally, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So people will see this and they'll see the grace of God on you and they'll respond. So what do we take away from this? What do we learn? Well, number one, joyful generosity is generated by grace, the grace of God. The more we come to grips with the great lengths to which God has gone to save us, the more we'll feel generous. The motivation for generosity is the incarnation. We see how generous Christ was for us on our behalf. Then we remember God's measure of generosity. We need to be ready, setting funds aside, willing, looking for opportunities, cheerful, in proportion to what we have, and sacrificial. So we may have to say no to some luxuries so that we can meet the necessities of others. And then that sets off a chain reaction. People's needs get met, people get joy, and God gets the glory over it all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the marvelous truths that we can be, behold from it. We confess these passages can be difficult for us. We too often trust in our own possessions for security and for happiness. So Lord, we pray that you would show us your beauty. Teach us to trust in your promises. Let us love others like you love us and make us a generous people who bring glory to you. Amen.